good to see everybody in the house of the Lord. It's been a, a, a rough week on one side. The other side's been glorious. And you've got to realize when Satan really gets mad, he really stands up against you. And you start coming, you know, face to face with the powers of evil. And uh, that's not, he, he's trying to discourage you, get you to quit. But that's not the time to get discouraged. That's the time to take courage. That, that's, uh, I liked what Sister Shannon said this week. She had to encourage herself in the Lord. Uh, that's a famous passage in the Bible where David uh, had to encourage himself. His ziklag was taken. All the women and children were taken captivity. All his men wanted to kill him because they were ready to stone him because this was David's fault. They blamed him. And the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And see, sometimes you just got to have a little talk Talk with yourself there a little bit, all right? Uh, sometimes there's a preacher around to encourage you or, or a friend around to encourage you. But when there's nobody around and the devil's fighting, you better, you better talk to the Lord. You need to encourage yourself in the Lord. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. We're talking about Mark. We're still in the Gospel of Mark, Lesson 2. I'm not sure if this is such a popular lesson last week, but I loved it a lot. And uh, I don't know if y'all did. I'm having a blast in Mark. And uh, what I would encourage you to do over the next three or four weeks, read the whole gospel. So, you know, slowly. Take a, two or three chapters a day or just, just immerse yourself in it. And as you do, just start saying, Lord, help me understand Jesus and his righteous life in a better way. The, the, really, the theme I pick up on the more I'm in Mark, the main theme is Jesus' authority. He's got authority over sickness. He's got authority over demons, devils. He's got authority you know, to raise the dead, authority over death. He's got authority over the winds and the waves, all the weather. Man, they got a storm coming in toward Florida right now. It's the biggest one I've seen in years. This morning it says 175 miles an hour wind. But some little lady down in Florida has been praying that thing off because it looks like it's going north and may not even hit land. I don't know if y'all know much about my business, but I profit when there's hurricanes because that <laughs> it's like a rip a shopping mall apart, and I get to buy the wet merchandise, and I sell that in our stores cheap. So... So on one side, I, I, have, I have learned where I don't pray for hurricanes anymore, all right? But I'm not real, I'm not, sometimes I'm thinking, yeah, Lord, they need it anyway. Let them have it with that hurricane there, you know. But uh, Jesus rebuked the weather. There's a lot of debate on whether weather is caused by Satan or God. I do know in the book of Job, Satan was in control of the weather when he was hit. But uh, Jesus has authority over that. Je there's nothing in your life Jesus doesn't have authority over. It's so, it's so powerful when you just bow at his feet and make him king and say, Lord, you are my authority. Rule and reign my life. That's when you have a breakthrough. That's when everything changes for you. That's when you actually enter the kingdom of God, when you make him the king. When you finally put down your authority. You say, I, I'm tired of... I don't know about you, but I'm tired of playing God. I'm tired of bossing my own life. I, it doesn't work out good for me every time I do it. I love it when I make him the king and he bosses my life and he rules and reigns and governs my life. That's when I'm into the kingdom. The Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. Within you. That means in the very core of your being, there's a throne there. And you can sit on the throne 
or Christ can sit on the throne. You have a choice. Even Christians, a lot of Christians love the Lord. He's their Savior, but they are not willing to let him sit on the throne of their being. So you want to enter into the kingdom. You want to have breakthrough in life. You want to live, learn to live an overcoming life, an abundant life. Put him on the throne. Sit at his feet and say, Jesus, my king, command me. Man, when you do that, everything, everything will change. All right, I'm going to run through this quickly. The, I just want to recap Mark 1, just a couple minutes. There were some very powerful things that we hit there. John was baptizing thousands of people in the River Jordan. Thousands. That all of Judea, all of Jerusalem came out. And they were all confessing their sins. Now this is, I don't know what John was telling them, but how did he get thousands of people to come and confess their sins? It's hard to get one person at a church to come down and confess sin, you know? They were, by, they were getting ready for Messiah. John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. So Jesus was coming, so everybody's heart needed to get ready. So they came, confessed sins, repented of their sins, got baptized in the River Jordan. Powerful, powerful move of God. A powerful ministry that John the Baptist had. And then when Jesus came, and he's, John said, you should, let me bab, uh, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no you got to baptize me. i got to fulfill all righteousness. And really, when he got baptized, what he was doing was identifying with the sinner. He went down into the waters, not to wash his sins away, but to pick up your sins, to pick up my sins, to start his whole ministry from this point to the cross was about him taking on our sins. He was the Lamb of God that came to remove our sins, not just to cover them, but to remove them, to abolish them, to eradicate them, to, to, to make them disappear. They're not even in God's book anymore. You think God's still keeping a book against you for all your sins? Beloved, when you got saved, he threw that book away. Your sins are forgiven. There is no more condemnation, no more guilt, no more shame. You don't walk under that sin. Those sins have been removed, been taken away. So at his baptism, though, this amazing thing happens. The first time in 400 years, all of a sudden, people see God on the earth. For the Word of God was standing there in the baptismal waters. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Not that He was a dove, but He came down like a dove and rested gently, resting upon Jesus. Here Jesus received the Spirit without measure. He had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. His body was a man, and He limited Himself where He could go or what He could do. But He had a fullness of the Spirit without measure. And then the father spoke over his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So you see the Trinity, father, son, and spirit. Now, we brought this point out, if, if God were just one, let's say before creation, there was God, no beginning, no end, no mother, no father, father, no genealogy, he was just God, he always has been. And if he was just one, could he even know love? You can't know love unless you know something to let you have something to love. So if he was just one, he wouldn't know love. Now we know God's a God of love. So we also know God was a father, a spirit, and a word back in eternity past, back before the creation. And he had this perfect love relationship going on between the three of them. Three equal persons of the Godhead. All three uh, equal God, 
Not the Father's the big God, the Son's second in command, Holy Spirit third in command. No, they're three equal persons. And they glorified one another. It wasn't that the Father was self-centered and the Spirit and the Son had to revolve around Him. No, they were equal. So therefore, they traded places in the center and did what C.S. Lewis called a divine dance. And they had this beautiful dance where one's giving glory to the other and the other to the other. And they commune with one another. They exalt one another. They glorify one another. They defer to one another. They magnify one another. They love one another. Loving relationship, this divine dance. And then, so here we see the Trinity, the baptism is so important because God is calling us into the dance with Him. See, what life is about is loving relationships. What the essence of the Trinity is about is loving relationship. Loving relationship between the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. So if, if that's what God is about, then believe me, that's what life is about. Life is not about how big a ministry you have or how much money you're going to make or how famous you are or how many Facebook followers you have. Life's not about any of that stuff. What life's about is loving relationships. And if you'll dance with the Lord and, and fall in love with Him, then it's easy to love each other. If you don't have your connection with God, it's very difficult to love man. So uh, man is born self-centered. I'm sitting on the stool. We can pretend this is me, the son, and I want everybody revolving around me. And if life is this way in the least little bit for you, you're going to find yourself unhappy. You're going to find yourself miserable. You'll find a lack of satisfaction with life, a lack of purpose. Because you're not built to be the center. You're not built to be on the throne of your heart. God is. That place is for God. And if you put Christ at the center of your life and stop being self-centered, if you get off the throne, put him on the throne and bow at his feet, then you can move into a realm of joy, a realm of peace, a realm of love, a realm of the abundant life, a realm calling, we could call it being an overcomer. But this self-centeredness needs to go. That's our enemy. Not, I'm not picking on anybody here. This is my enemy. I've spent way too many days of my life on the throne of my own heart. Okay, God has invited you to the dance. Will you dance with him? Then, then we go to Mark 1.14. This is a really powerful verse. He said, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here you see he emphasizes the kingdom. This, this whole gospel of Mark is about the kingdom of God. He, he's going to, you know, it's not just enough to be saved. I, I can't say this too many times. God wants you to enter his kingdom. He wants you to enter a kingdom relationship. And we know the importance of the king. If we just get the right king on the earth, it all will be fine. People have thought throughout all the eons of time. Uh, lots of people want Jesus as savior. Very few want him as king. So as we read Mark and you look at his authority, I, I challenge you to keep asking yourself, Lord, are you really the king of my life? I mean, don't lie to yourself. Don't, don't, don't deceive yourself. Don't just say, oh, yeah, he's my king. Look at how you're living <laughs> all day long. Look at how you're living all week long. Is he the king over every little area of your life? And then he talks about the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And... Um, one day I'm going to get a big newspaper printed, and every page of it is going to be about Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus, you know, redeeming us. 
and, and I want to pass these out all over town because the gospel, it's news. It's, 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 it's like you read the Courier Journal this morning, that's news. Uh, religion's advice. You can get advice anywhere you want to, but news, this is a life-changing event. This is a life-changing news. When you understand the gospel is the best news you're ever going to hear in your life and how it affects your life, you, you'll start focusing on the good news of the gospel. It's easy to be religious. And I talk about that because I'm talking about thousands of different sects of Christianity. And, and an overwhelming majority of them behave like a religion instead of proclaiming the gospel. And, I, and I, it, I, any, in many, many different type denominations, just don't worry about the denomination you came from. There, there are people like that, hundreds, thousands of churches all over America that proclaim the name of Christ, but all they do is give advice and put people under bondage of rules and regulation. Religion is all about ritual and regulation and rules. The gospel is about a love relationship with the living Savior. The gospel, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus has authority overall. All right, that's my little recap. We're going to hit Mark 2, and you get this fascinating story in Mark 2. One of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. And he returned to Capernaum. After some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed on which the paralytic lay, let the bed down. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a story. Now Jesus is preaching to a packed house. It's so packed out, it's standing room only. It's so packed out on both sides of the door, inside and outside, there's a mob. You see, messianic fever had been going for 30 years. You remember 30 years ago, the wise men came from the east wanting to find the child, and they, it caused such a fear in Herod's mind that he killed the babies. Y'all remember that? So that, don't, don't think that didn't go by without some news. Everybody knew. So they had been looking for Messiah for 30 years. And John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. That's why he had this amazing turnout, thousands of people. They were all looking for Messiah. And now Jesus has began his ministry, and he's already doing miracles everywhere he goes, just amazing miracles, healing the sick, uh, casting out devils. That They saw him as having authority, not like the scribes, but he was the author of the Word of God, not just a reader of the Word. He wrote the Word of God. And he had this amazing authority. So he had this packed out house. The four men are carrying their buddy on a stretcher or a mat or something. Four men, that they've got their buddy who's paralyzed. And they get to the door and it's full. They can't get by. I'm sure they probably started saying, hey, would y'all make room? Would you make room? I got a sick friend here. And everyone said, we can't make room. There's nowhere for us to go. We are packed out. You can't do it. And then one of them had the idea. I think it was Rufus. I'm not sure which one it was. But one of them had an idea there that let's climb up on the roof. 
Let's, let's bring this guy up on the roof and we can let him down. Do you know anyone that's paralyzed spiritually? Everybody lost is paralyzed. They can't walk on for God. They can't lift their hands and praise for God. They can't serve God. Unless you're born again, you, you have no spiritual movement. If, if you're a lost person and not born again, that means you're an enemy of God. You're separated from God. You're, you're under the condemnation of God. So when I read this story, I think, man, I know a lot of lost people. And what I need to do is go get them and bring them to Jesus. Because if I know that if I bring them to Jesus, everything's going to be all right. These guys, they were great friends of this paralyzed person. <clears throat> when they realized they couldn't get through the house, through the door, I don't know if they had a ladder, I don't know if they stood on each other's shoulders, <laughs> but it had to be a pretty amazing thing because when they got up there, they had to get their friend up there. And then they started cutting a hole in the roof. Now, what if somebody did that today? If all of a sudden we saw these saws, you know, buzz saws, and cutting a, a they're taking a risk that the, the owner of the house is going to be pretty miffed at them, right? You don't fix a hole in the roof that big real easy. Jesus could have even been mad at them. What if Jesus would have said, hey, we're shutting the meeting down right now. You know, I want y'all to all rebuke the devil because we got some idiot up here cutting a hole in the roof. No, he saw the beauty of it. He saw the, the love in it. He saw the compassion in it. When, when they realized that they cut a hole in the roof, their door of opportunity turned into a door of disappointment. So when they were coming to the house and it was all full and they, they couldn't get in, that was their door. They've been talking about this for days. They've been telling their friend, we're going to take you to Jesus and everything's going to be all right. And when they get there and there's a crowd in front of the door and they, they can't get in, most of us would have quit right there. But, but they see a door of disappointment, you know, and they're going to turn that in. My mom and dad always said, I don't think I do that. When, you know, you go through a door that God opens, but when God closes the door, don't shove it open. This story kind of goes against that grain of, of think, thinking. When, this story says when the door's closed and you can't get through the door, then go up on the roof and cut a hole in the roof and make you a door. Sometimes when we come to God, I think he wants to see just how much we really need him, just how much we need to get connected to him. Sometimes he wants you to do something radical like cutting a hole in the roof. Are you all hearing that? Amen. It's a powerful story. When one door closes, just make you a new door. Don't, don't let anybody tell you no. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? The four friends' faith. The, he didn't say when I saw the, the faith of the paralyzed man. No, when I see the faith of the, of the four friends, their faith, then he looked at the paralyzed man and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there was the faith of these four friends that caught Jesus' eye. You remember when Jesus was walking through a crowd and a lady pushed through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, and he remembered the virtue coming out of him, how he could feel the virtue leave. I feel like this was a similar thing. He saw these four men trying to help their buddy this much, doing something so radical that it moved Jesus. It moved him, and when he saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Remember, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. In Hebrews 11, there's that whole chapter, they call it the heroes of faith or the hall of faith. It says, Abel, believe God. Enoch, believe God. And God just raptured him. Noah, believe God. Enough to work on a boat for 100 years when it never rained. Noah had faith. Noah, believe God. It talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all believing God, all trusting God. It talks about Moses. Moses walking away from the luxuries of Egypt and going 40 years in the wilderness and God calling him to go to Egypt and rescue his people. Moses believed God. He was a man of faith. God recorded all these heroes in the Bible in the Old Testament because of the faith they had. You see, they were justified by faith. We're made righteous by faith. We're saved by faith. It's all by faith. Are you out there? So the story of Jesus saw their faith. Faith is reckoning upon reality. Reckoning upon, faith is the gaze of the soul at the living God. There, there's a, this verse in Hebrews 11.1 1 doesn't really define faith. It tells you it, kind of what it does. It's a substance of things hoped for. In other words, it, it's got substance to it. It's not just some empty pie in the sky. It has substance to it. The evidence of things not seen. Faith, uh, it should be a way of life to you. Faith is not just what you do at return or, or, or shouldn't have a compartmentalized view or just this little part of your life. You have faith. No, faith should be your way of life. The Bible says the righteous live by faith. Uh, it's not a feeling. It's not a walk. It's not a talk. It is a walk. It's not a talk. It's a lifestyle. It's a walk. It's not jumping off into darkness. It's not name it and claim it. There's a faith movement in the church world today where they teach a prosperity message of health and prosperity, health and wealth, name it and claim it. Beloved, you need to, if you've listened to a lot of those sermons, you need to undo that somehow in your head. It's not your ability to change your future. See, that's, turn, that's very new age when you think you can just, you can say it how you want it and believe it and do it. And you're, you're, no, beloved, faith is a God-given ability to believe in the invisible promises of God's Word. It's not your own ability. That's, that's not real faith. I mean, you can believe in something not true, and that's not faith. I often say this, you can believe in Santa Claus all you want to, but that ain't going to make him come on Christmas Eve. And, and there's so many bad concepts out there in the religious world and in the Christian world. And faith, again, is truthing the truth. It's reckoning upon reality. It's, it's trusting in that invisible promise of God's Word. Like, I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. See, I know that. I know that. I know that. And I don't even worry about it. But when I'm at the hospital drawing my last breath, you'll find out if I have faith then. Am I at peace with that? You know, we, we say we believe God's word, but do we really believe it? Every promise, all the hundreds and thousands of promises in God's word are ours if we'll learn only to believe. Faith, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Don't, don't think when you're emotionally right, you got faith, and you, when you don't feel it, you don't. It's faith, it's got nothing to do with your emotions. Faith comes by, A, it's a gift from God. Romans 12, 3 says God gives us 
according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you realize we all have a different measure of faith assigned to us? So if somebody seems to have more faith than another, don't judge that person. You, you may have a different gift. But th this is talking about the gifts of the Spirit here. And every Christian doesn't have the same measure of faith. How do you get faith? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. It's a progression. It starts as a gift. When you get saved, God gives you a gift to believe. Then there's reasoning, understanding, conviction, and commitment. And that all takes time. That's a progression. It starts with reasoning. Remember when Jesus was talking to them about they were concerned about their natural needs? And he said, consider the lilies. Consider the lilies. Everything about faith starts off with consider. Consider this. Reason. Let's reason together, saith the Lord. If you need faith, you need to get your head in your Bible and start reasoning. Start considering. Start seeing what God says about you and about him and about life. I love it. Faith. Amen. It's a progression. It starts with reasoning, then you gain understanding, you get conviction, you get commitment enough to live it. If, you'll, if you're not living your faith or walking your faith, it's not really faith. It's just a shallow thing in your head somewhere. Would you do anything to get your friends to Jesus? Your paralyzed, lost friends. Do you even care about them enough to worry with it? ask you another question what who are you responsible for out there do you feel like god's made you responsible let's finish the story jesus knew the man had bigger problems than his paralysis you might have a bigger problem in your present suffering man when when you're hurting like i got this foot thing going i'm thinking man if i can only see the foot doctor and give me a shot of steroids or whatever he's got to do i got to get that thing fixed and all my problems be over with when i get that foot fixed they will until it gets fixed and I got a new priority in my life. You might say, well, man, I got this financial pressure on me. If, if Jesus just helped me with this, everything would be all right. So you start buying lottery tickets trying to hope the pressure leaves you, huh? Let me tell you something. When my foot gets fixed, I'm still going to have problems. And when you get, that when you get your bills paid and the finances fixed, you're still going to have problems. So uh, Jesus realized this man whom his four friends lowered through the roof had a bigger problem than his paralysis yeah he couldn't move but he, even in that bad of shape Jesus said yeah you got a bigger problem than that let's go right to the core of the problem son your sins are forgiven wow <laughs> he realized that getting uh, your relationship right with God is more important than alleviating him from his physical suffering and I'll say that to anybody out here today. Whatever your problem is that you would like Jesus to fix for you, let him go deeper. Let him go to the very core first. Get that fixed first, and then we'll work on the other. That is good. And here's the rest of the story, how it reads. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He blasphemed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus can read people's minds. He's just sitting there reading their minds. And he comes back, well, what, are you, what are you guys questioning this for? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose up immediately, picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen something like this. Amazing miracle. So he tells the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, I, I'm going I'm to heal him just so you understand that I have the authority to forgive sins. What Jesus was saying was, I am God. He's, he's telling them right there, I'm God. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And they didn't want to accept this at all. So he said, well, to prove to you I'm God, I'm going to heal the guy right in front of your face. Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? The problem about forgiving sins, it cost Jesus his very life. So that wasn't easy. That was bloodshed. So, uh, you know, from a natural perspective, you can read Bible commentaries, and a lot of commentaries will keep saying they don't know the answer to that question. They argue that back and forth, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal. Jesus can do both, but he had to die in order to, to forgive our sins. The good king has come. Tolkien wrote a book for kids called, and in that was a great quote where he says, everything sad will come untrue when the king comes back. So when the king comes back, Jesus is coming back to this earth and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years in the millennial reign, headquartered right out of Jerusalem. And we'll be there with him. And everything sad about life will come untrue. It's going to be a beautiful life, a peaceful life, a joyous life in the very presence of the Lord. Uh, this story then moves from there to this. And I just think it's phenomenal how Jesus is keeping the Pharisees stirred up. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he's teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, this was the biggest call yet for a disciple. The first four were fishermen. This guy was a tax collector. Tax collectors had the worst reputation in all of Israel. They were thieves. They were low lives. Nobody respected the tax collectors. So for Jesus to pick a tax collector, that was making a major statement to everyone. And, and it was such a big deal, Levi invited Jesus and, and probably the other four disciples he had with him right there to come on over to his house and meet some of his friends. And this is ESV. I love ESV on, in this instance. It says, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. King James says, sat at meat. Just doesn't quite get it, right? Recli what are they doing? They got the recliners out. They got their feet up. They're having a barbecue. They're having a party. They probably got a football game going on or something. I, uh, there's no football back then. I get that. But they were reclining with who? And Jesus was reclining with who? Sinners. Sinners. Man, when we get real all-exclusive so that we can't go out and touch the world and love the world, then we're missing the whole thing. He reclining with Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
NLT says, I came not to call those that think they're righteous, but I came to the sinners. See, the, the church, the, the religious world, they didn't know they were lost. They were just angry at Jesus all the time. So he's saying, I can't even help those. The only people I can help are the, those that know they're sinners. In fact, if you're so religious that you don't need Jesus, beloved, you're never going to get help until you know that you're a sinner. It's, the ground's equal at Calvary's cross, and we're all sinners. <clears throat> Reclining with Jesus. I want to just make a couple thoughts about relational evangelism. He's told us to be in the world, just not of the world. So you don't go compromise your beliefs, your convictions. You don't compromise that when you're around them, but you got to go to where they are. And you got to love them and ju don't judge them. Accept them and love them. It's not your place to judge a sinner. You're supposed to just love them. You got to go where they are, find them, make friends with them. You know, relational evangelism is all about making friends. Make friends and bring them to church. That's a good start right there. And ask the Lord, who are you responsible for? Do you think that God puts these people in your life that, and they're lost, they're paralyzed, and you think that God doesn't want you to reach out to them? I'll guarantee you God wants you to reach out to them. That's what being a disciple is all about, what being a witness is all about. I love this story of the four friends on the mat, and they found this guy, and they do everything possible, even radical faith, throwing him down from the roof of a house, or lowering him down, not throwing him, and uh, getting that guy saved and healed. Look at their faith. Look at their commitment. Look at the evangelism of these four people. Man, I, I'm not telling you to bring people in here on the mat, but I'm telling you to invite people to church. You know, there's a whole lot of people we interact with that could be lost and on their way to hell. And all they need is somebody to reach out to them and love them, get them thinking about the Lord, bring them to church. Let's, let's give an altar call for them. Then Jesus talks about new wineskin. I don't have time to take that. I'm just going to go to one last story. In Mark chapter 3, he deals with the, the Sabbath day again. A month ago, we had a lesson in Hebrews 4, I think, about the Sabbath day. He came to abolish religion and replace it with himself. That's basically the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I'm going to abolish the Old, and I'm going to replace it with myself. He said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. That won't work. You've you got to get rid of the old wineskin. So you've got to get rid of your religion, your forms, and your rituals in order for the Holy Spirit to flow through you like he wants to. Religion, form, rituals. You spent your whole life with these things. You never even checked them out whether that pleases God or not. It's just the way some church did it, some preacher did it. When he says new wine and these new wineskins, he's saying the new covenant can't come through the old covenant. And uh, so anyway, go home and read Mark 3. I'm not going to take time for it. But after he uh, healed the withered hand on the Sabbath day, the Bible says the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I think King James says how to kill him. They were planning how to kill him, all because he healed on the Sabbath, all because they couldn't understand this man at all. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he was the Son of God. And so what you see here is that a moralism or, or relativism, you know, each is, hates Jesus. The moralists, the Pharisees, 
they hated, hated Jesus because he was a threat to their identity. And then the Herodians, that's the, that's the Romans, that's the people serving under Herod. That's the people that aren't religious at all. They're the irreligious. So the religious hated Jesus and the irreligious hated Jesus, both groups. Pharisees and the Herodians, all, they wanted him dead. And it's that way again today, right here in, in America. The real religious people hate the gospel. The real people that are embedded in religion say the gospel is too easy. It's not enough about what we do. You know, their religion's all about what they do. Our gospel is all about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's the difference. But there's people today that hate the gospel. And then the, in chapter 3, you read about him selecting the rest of his disciples. You see, his family thought he was out of his mind. And then later, his family said, we want to see Jesus beating on the door while he's teaching. He said, no, my, those that do the will of my father, that's my mother and my brothers. So Jesus drew a line there between natural family and spiritual family. And then, he, and then he gave some teachings. There's not a lot of teaching in Mark, so you might want to go pay attention. He did the parable of the sower. He did uh, the parable of the growth of the seed. He, he did a lamp. Don't put a lamp under a basket. He did the mustard seed and uh, one other. But, so there's some powerful, powerful principles there in those parables in Mark 3. And then I just want to get you this one place, and we'll go home. Mark 4, where he calms a storm. This is, this is an awesome story. Let, just listen to the story. Let it bless you. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And, when, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love that story. Is your life, anybody got a stormy life going on here? Or do you know somebody's got a stormy life? Or, or do you have storms come and go? It's like, in my life, they just come and go. I got it one this week, next week, it's gone. I think, ah, oh, man, we're out of the stormy season, and boom, here another one comes. When storms come, do you question whether he loves you or not? Because what, what these guys did, they went down, woke him up, and said, don't you even care that we're dying up here? I've prayed that way before. Lord, aren't you paying attention to what i got going on in my life? Man, things are ripping apart. The, the winds are strong. Think the waves are crashing in here. I need some help. Don't you care about me? I mean, I'm your servant. Don't you care about me? That's a natural reaction, but it's not a reaction of faith. God's wanting you to put trust, trust in the Lord who has all authority over the storm through the storm. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust him that he, he has you right where he wants you. Trust him enough that he's the head of your life, that all things work together for the good, to those that love, to the called according to his purpose. Trust that he's the sovereign ruler. He's the king. 
It's the kingdom of God, and he's the king. It's all right if there's a storm in my life. And then there's a similar story here. If you look at the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Had, there was a great storm. Jonah was sleeping in the boat. Y'all remember? And the, the sailors came down and woke Jonah up. And Jonah was thrown over seaside. Why? And then there was a great calm. The storm stopped. Are we right? Huh? And see, it's a picture. Jesus was thrown overboard into the, at the cross, into the storm of eternal justice. It took Jesus being, being thrown overboard into the storm of eternal justice at the cross of Calvary. Jesus said in Matthew 12, one greater than Jonah is here. As Jonah was in the belly of the earth, of, of the whale for three days and three nights, Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he rose from the dead. He overcame the storm. He overcame death. He overcame the grave. The story of Jonah was a story of Jonah running from the will of God, where they, this story is Jesus taking the disciples into the will of God. And the disciples had to learn. I really believe when Jesus went downstairs on the nap, he prayed, Father, send a storm. I want to show these boys how to think in a storm. So they woke him up and he rebuked them. He calmed the sea first. He just spoke to the wind, and not only to the wind, but into the waves. The waves just turned crystal still. And then he looked at them and said, Why are you guys so afraid? Why don't you have faith? Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is reckoning upon reality. Faith is trusting in the invisible promises of God's Word. It's a gift from God that where He gives us the ability to trust the promises of God's Word. And no matter what your situation is today, whether you need healing, whether you need a financial miracle, or maybe you need your sins forgiven, you know, all you got to do is believe. Because Jesus Christ did everything else for you. All you got to do is believe. Let's stand to our feet. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for coming alive in such a special way in the Gospel of Mark. As we study this Gospel, Lord, I just pray that everybody's eyes would be open and that we would get a new love relationship with you. We see what you've done for us, when we see what the Gospel really means, when we, that we'd become so grateful, Lord Jesus, that all we'd want to do every day is to please you. You said without faith it's impossible to please God. So, Lord, give us the faith that we need. Let our faith grow. Let it expand. Give us understanding and conviction and commitment, Lord God, that our, that our faith might increase, that we might walk with you, that this would be a walk of faith, not a talk of faith, not a feeling of faith, but our life would be a lifestyle of faith. Lord, faith enough to bring a paralytic to the feet of Jesus. Faith enough, Lord God, to calm a storm. Faith enough, Jesus, that we might be saved, that we might be healed, that we might be set free. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.